Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. We've been looking at the series of body contemplations that form much of the Satipatthana Sutta. We've seen that each has a characteristic structure. Each begins with an examination of some aspect that characterizes the body. This aspect is what I call evidence for the presumption that there is a substantial body, for it is closer at hand or more evident in experience than the presumption itself. This examination is contemplating internally. Next, we return to the body itself as a single substantial object. All we have to do is ask, Where is the body in all of this? Or where is the self? If we've been sufficiently absorbed in internal contemplation long enough, with a clear mind, letting go of covetousness and grief for the world, we generally experience some difficulty in returning to the substantial body. This is not a matter of intellectual or logical argument. We can't locate it, except as a kind of intellectual abstraction. This is the purpose of taking internal analysis onto the cushion. We don't need to really think about it. We just find that in the middle of contemplating internally, just observing what does arise in experience, the body simply isn't there. This internalizes more effectively what we might otherwise be intellectually trying to understand. This is contemplating externally. Then we realize the evidence does not necessitate the existence of a substantial body. The evidence is one thing, the body is something else altogether. This is contemplating both internally and externally. Then, We double down on undermining our presumption of a substantial body. The chief requirement for something to be substantial is for it to be permanent, or at least reliably permanent. Is the body like that? The evidence certainly is not. Or some of the evidence may seem relatively permanent, like the bones, for instance. But then we can repeat internal analysis for the bones and realize The evidence for the bones is not permanent, and so on. This process itself might still seem academic at this point until we experience the results of this practice and sense in our bones that the body is somewhat academic. It is something mind adds to our experience. Let me illustrate this process with an even less substantial object of contemplation, clouds. Suppose you're flying in a small airplane. You see clouds around the plane. You are still thinking externally, oh, there is a cloud. It has a shape. 
and size, it casts a shadow. It is substantial. I can even fly through it. You then fly into a cloud, and this is the beginning of Satipatthana practice and internal analysis. You see water droplets striking the windshield. You notice on the instrument panel that it has become a bit colder, and maybe the barometric pressure has changed. In this world, cloud becomes an abstraction. The evidence is all around, but is there independent of any idea of cloud? Where is the cloud to be found? Water droplets, temperature, and pressure don't need clouds and are moreover extremely impermanent. In fact, any change in one of these variables tends to cause changes in the others at a very local level. Droplets, temperature, and pressure are one thing, clouds another. The body is like that as well, but for clouds, it's easy to see this externally as well as internally. On many occasions, clouds change very quickly. One cloud can split into two, or a cloud can begin growing at one edge, seemingly out of nothing, or simply start dissolving or appear in the first place out of nothing. These observations easily call into question the whole notion of a cloud as an object that exists and seem to verify the internal analysis at the same time. We can observe our own confusion as we try to wrap objecthood around clouds and realize that it's not that there is nothing out there, but existence or non-existence is a matter of choice for the human witness. For the Buddha, both existence and non-existence are extreme views. We might also observe that clouds conveniently become objects when we want to do something with them, like predict rain, enjoy their shade, wait for the sun to pop through, and, and so on. This is true of clouds, it's true of the body, it's true of the self, and it's true of anything else. This is why the Buddha tells us in the Dhammapada, Mind precedes all phenomena. Mind is their chief. They are all mind made. If, with an impure mind, a person speaks or acts, suffering follows him like the wheel that follows the foot of the ox. Mind precedes all phenomena. Mind is their chief. They are all mind made. If, with a pure mind, a person speaks or acts, happiness follows him like his never-departing shadow. Why do we care about what substantially exists and what doesn't? Because we take our unnecessary presumptions seriously, and the more unskillful of these, like the presumption of a self, get us into trouble as surely as the wheel follows the foot of the ox. It is in this sense that our experienced world is constructed, that is, constructed by mind. Since it is mind-constructed, it can be constructed otherwise and experienced otherwise. 
We Satipatthana practitioners are not fixed by presumptions. Incidentally, there's a tendency to say that if objects are mentally constructed, they are mental objects. For instance, the beginning of the passage from the Dhammapada is often translated as follows. Mind precedes all mental states, which seems to me to be almost a tautology. This translation confuses representation with meaning. Clouds, whether they exist or not, are physical. Something is out there. We have experience, which is mental, but we can experience physicality. That is the only physicality we know. Objecthood is what is at question. Our mental representations point to things beyond themselves, or at least intend to point to things outside of themselves, which might not happen to be there. But our mental representations mean something, just like language means something beyond itself. The cow in the barn is a spoken utterance, or it's a string of letters. But it means a physical animal in a physical space. Our mental representations are uh, mental, but what they mean can be very physical. This brings us to the final set of body exercises in the Satipatthana, the charnel ground contemplations. They are decisive in undermining the presumption of a substantial body because they catch the body at a stage where the body is more like clouds. That is, its impermanence is quite apparent externally. There are nine exercises of this nature, each of which contemplates corpses in a progressive stage of decomposition. The first begins like this. Again, Bhikkhus, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, livid, and oozing matter, a bhikkhu compares this same body with it thus. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Sorry if these exercises are a bit graphic. Like the contemplation of body parts, this exercise can serve to develop dispassion for the body and even for other people's bodies, which can help control lust. Once again, the yogi must visualize the object of contemplation in his mind, even though he is visualizing something physical. It was apparently possible at the time of the Buddha to actually visit a charnel ground to observe bodies directly in these various stages of decay. Charnel grounds were places where people could be unceremoniously discarded upon death, neither buried nor cremated, but dumped like rubbish. They must have smelled awful but they enjoyed some popularity as a dining place for a variety of hungry animals. However, notice that this exercise is phrased as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground. 
the Pali seyatapi, suggesting imagining this happening. Whether we actually see or merely visualize the corpse, we are also asked to visualize that this is the future me. As before, the exercise as described is the internal contemplation of evidence for the body. External contemplation is the revisiting of the presumption of a substantial body, and both internal and external contemplation is the consideration of whether evidence justifies the presumption, which it never does. However, the internal contemplation takes us in a different direction than previous body exercises, in that as the body decays, we progressively lose the evidence for that body that we have already contemplated. The result is that the presumption of the substantial body becomes increasingly tenuous, like the dissolving cloud. In particular, in this initial exercise, the evidence of both breath and bodily action is missing. Though even a corpse still has a posture, body parts, and elements. But even those will be lost as we progress through the charnel ground exercises. Impermanence becomes a non-brainer for these exercises. After the requisite internal analysis refrain, we continue with the next charnel ground exercise. Again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, or various kinds of worms, a bhikkhu compares this same body with it thus. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. The body continues to lose its integrity, resulting in increasingly poor internal evidence for the presumption of the body. Here we lose many of the internal organs of the body. This stage has much in common with the supplementary contemplation of swapping out parts of our car that we discussed a couple of weeks ago. After the refrain, we move on to the next stage. Again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, a skeleton with flesh and blood held together with sinews, a bhikkhu compares this same body with it thus. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. And further proceeding to the next charnel ground exercise. Again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood, held together with sinews, a bhikkhu compares this same body with it thus. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. And further, again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, 
a skeleton without flesh and blood, held together with sinews, a bhikkhu compares this same body with it thus. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It will not be exempt from that fate. And further, again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, disconnected bones scattered in all directions, here a hand bone, there a foot bone, here a shin bone, there a thigh bone, here a hip bone, there a back bone, here a rib bone, there a breast bone, here an arm bone, there a shoulder bone, here a neck bone, there a jaw bone, here a tooth, there the skull. Abhiku compares this same body with it thus. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. So in this case, it has lost its posture. And further, again as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, bones bleached white, the color of shells, a bhikkhu compares this same body with it thus. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. And again, again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, bones heaped up, a bhikkhu compares this same body with it thus. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Since the bones are heaped up, maybe it's regained its posture. And finally, in the very last charnel ground contemplation, again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, bones more than a year old, rotted and crumbled to dust, a bhikkhu compares this same body with it thus. This body, too, is of the same nature. It'll be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. The body has lost all evidence for its existence, except for the earth element. As in the case of clouds, the point at which the body is no longer there is a matter of arbitrary choice, of mental choice. There is nothing inherent in nature out there that tells us whether the body exists or not. Its substantial existence is a mental construct and was all along. There's a documentary film I recommend to Satipatthana practitioners that relates to the issue of presumption of existence. It's the 2001 film Rivers and Tides, a documentary about the work of artist Andy Goldsworthy, whose method is to work closely with nature to produce objects of art physically, much as cognizance produced objects mentally. 
For instance, he might create a house-like structure on the beach out of sticks, or a colorful ribbon running through the woods out of leaves. Then he simply observes and films how natural processes are entirely indifferent to his creations, how the tide comes in, the rain falls, the wind blows, with our minds fixated on the artifacts he has created, we experience these processes as decay of these objects. As far as nature is concerned, these objects do not exist at all, except in the human mind. Their birth, decay, and death are all in the human mind. Oddly, this process gives a sense of the beauty of nature, perhaps because it releases us temporarily from the constraints of the human mind. So with that, we end the contemplation of the body. Next week, we will move on to the feeling contemplation.